pardon me, Doc, but could you rent me a U-Dry flying saucer? I've got to get back to the Earth. The Earth? Oh, the Earth will be gone in just a few seconds. Oh, well, uh, don't bother, then. No point in wasting money on a flying saucer when the Earth's not gonna... Uh, pardon me again, Doc, but uh, just what did you mean by that crack about the Earth being gone? Oh, uh, I'm going to blow it up. It obstructs my view of Venus. It does? That's a shame. Where's the kaboom? There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. The Illudium Pew 36 explosive space modulator. That creature has stolen the space modulator. Delays, delays. Hello? Hello? It's all around us. Hey everybody, what is up, and welcome back to Project Archivist. Sorry it took me so long to get this episode up into the feed. I've just been really busy. I went out to Utah and hung out there for about a week or so. Son did a bunch of really cool, neat, and some strange stuff out there. I did go to Chuck Brewer's house in the Wheel Nerds and managed to hang out at his house for a little bit, but I did not actually see Chuck Brewer. So, yeah. Anyways, um, I recently appeared on the most recent episode of the Alex cast. It was myself and Steph and we were uh, talking about strange things and if you want to hear all about my Utah trip you can listen to it over there um, also I've had a lot of junk going on here with family birthday parties and stuff like that during the recording of this episode I was fighting off a sinus infection no I did not have COVID I have this weird seasonal allergy thing or it's not even allergies this is when the pressure change hits my sinuses feel like somebody hit me in the forehead with a brick so when we're recording this episode you'll probably notice it because I'm kind of all over the map on like different um, decongestants just trying like hell to keep my shit together and keep the show going because in the words of Freddie Mercury the show must go on. This week I have guest co-host with me Joe from Ozone Nightmare. Uh, because of time constraints and everything going on I did not record the pre and post show with him. Our main guest is Mark Hartsman from WeirdHistorian.com. It's been a couple of years since Mark has been on here. Mark runs a fantastic blog of just really strange, weird well as it says, weird history and I am a weird history nut. Yeah. 
So I was going through, going through the blogs as I usually do and going through the websites and looking for books and looking for guests. And I was like, hey, I haven't talked to Mark in a while. Maybe I should get hold of him, see if he wants to come on the show and talk about what's going on with him and his site recently. Mark says, yeah, I can do that. By the way, I have a new book coming out. It's called The Big Book of Mars. And Jesus Christ, it is a big book of Mars. Um, what's weird about this is Mark is usually like, he covers strange, weird stuff. So I was like, why would you do a book on Mars? I mean, like Mars is so, it's not normally something that you would cover, but as, as Mark is the way he is, it is full of lots of strange and weird and neat stuff in it. So, um, Somehow or another, he just fell into doing this book. And I said, yeah, sure. So he sent it up to me and I read it and I got a hold of Joe and said, hey, Joe, would you be interested in doing this? If you don't know who Joe is from Ozone Nightmare by now, then you just haven't listened to this show for very long. You can find him at Ozone Nightmare. Yeah, he's pretty much any place you find podcasts, you can find the Ozone Nightmare. But anyways, so um, we're just going to jump into this again. Apologies if I seem a little out of it or weird or just all over the place. I was on a lot of decongestants and I was on a lot of nasal like headache pain during the recording of this show and I tried it as hard as I could to keep my shit together and keep this thing going. So let's jump into it and I will see you guys at the other side. Here we go. Alright, so this week we have returning after the last time you were on here was 2018. It's Mark Hartsman from WeirdHistorian.com. Um, you have a new book out, which is The Big Book of Mars. And you've also got a few other strange, weird books out. And your blog is fascinatingly strange and weird. It's one of my favorite ones to visit. I, I've been keeping tabs on it over the years and I keep like, I need to bug Mark to come back on. And as soon as I did, you were like, hey, I've got a new book coming out. You want a copy of it? And that's how this all fell together. So how have you been, Mark? I haven't talked to you in a while. What's been going on? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks. It's good to be back. I've been been busy with the book and working on a new book and, you know, keeping Weird Historian going. So, and, and, you know, a day job as well. So I'm keeping myself pretty busy. So I got to ask, because the book you sent me, I mean, this is like a grip. This thing's like a telephone book. It's It's a nice, thick book. It's very well done. The art's good in it. Um, the articles and the stories and the things you cover here are very good, but why Mars? I always thought that Mars is kind of like their moment. Mars's moment in the sun has kind of come and gone. It seemed like for a few years ago, it was like Mars, Mars, Mars. We got to get to Mars. We got to get to Mars. And then it's kind of like died off. What encouraged you to make a book about Mars? You know, I never expected to be writing about Mars. It's it's definitely not a topic I had. No, it's so strange for you. Before. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> this is not something I would have expected to come from you. Yeah, I didn't expect to write a science book, but uh, and it's not just a science book. It's it's a really a weird history slash science book. It's a it's yeah. the weird history part that got me involved. So, you know, you mentioned weirdhistorian.com. And when I first started that site several years ago, um, I had I had a bunch of stories to kind of start with. And then as I was looking for new material to write, I remembered remembered hearing something about Nikola Tesla trying to contact Mars. And I thought, oh, that might be kind of fun to write about. Just sort of a weird thing. Right. So I started going through some newspaper archive uh, services, looking for some articles about Tesla. 
And instead of finding what I was looking for with him, at least at that moment, I found another story about a guy in the 1920s uh, whose name was Dr. Hugh Mansfield Robinson, who was a lawyer from London. And he was he was trying to or he was claiming that he was in telepathic communication with a Martian woman named Umaruru. And when I saw this headline, I, I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. This was read. I mean, this was really weird. This seemed like way beyond what Tesla was. But I thought I would find about Tesla. So, so I dug into this story a little bit more. This was 1926, and at the time, Mars was in opposition, uh, which meant that it's at its closest point to Earth in its orbit, so about 35 million miles away. So this guy, Dr. Uh, Robinson, he decided that he would use the uh, largest, most powerful radio tower in London, in the world, uh, which was in London, called Rugby Radio Tower, to send a telegram to Mars since it was close. He's like, this is a great time to try and reach you with science. And Umaruru assured him that the uh, scientists would be awaiting the communication. Um, and they'd had all these great conversations. And so this was big news. This was all over newspapers all over the world. We're covering this big event that we'd be sending a telegram to Mars. And he was getting um, a great rate to do it from the post office. The post office controlled the radio tower. So we got the long distance rate. And it, I, I kind of was amused by the fact that the post office was using this uh, as a, a PR, mo you know, PR push to basically mm -hmm. promote their long distance rate through this crazy story about sending telegrams to Mars. So, you know, we can send anywhere and here's the rate. So they sent it that night. Um, it was a night in October. And, uh, and of course, nothing came back. They got no response. And according to Umaruru, the scientists were laughing at our scientists for not having enough smarts to receive their their messages or to send messages to them properly. So basically, it was our fault. It wasn't the Martians' fault. They were fine. It's us. You know, uh, it's us. It's not them. So he was upset about all this. Um, he tried it again two years later in 1928 when Mars was in opposition once again every two years. And again, no response. Um, and he was disappointed and again, frustrated with our scientists. So this whole thing was just truly bizarre. You know, he'd heard all about Martian life, Umaruru. Uh, had described this wonderful, idyllic life um, on Mars. People were very peaceful. They were very advanced. They were very tall. She was about seven feet tall. The men were taller. Um, she had big ears. She had tall hair, kind of like Marge Simpson. Um, so, you know, everything seemed great over there. And he was stuck here with a bunch of um, idiot scientists who couldn't, com you know, communicate with Martians. So as I was reading about this and writing about this, I started uncovering all these other things going on around that time, you know, in the early 1900s, late 1800s, about beliefs in intelligent life on Mars. He wasn't the only one. Of course, there was Tesla, uh, Marconi, lots of other brilliant scientists from Harvard, Amherst, Johns Hopkins, brilliant people, you know, professors, astronomers, who truly believed that there was intelligent life on Mars and that we'd be communicating with them any day now. So that's what got me going into Mars, um, kind of uncovering this weird sort of bizarre history uh, and then kind of taking it from there. So where do you want to start in this book? Where's, where's a good launching point for you to start this discussion at? Before, before we go too far, by the yeah. way, out of that entire tale, the part that trips me up is the obviousness of the name Hugh Mansfield. Put the first three letters of the last name with the first four letters Umaruru. in the name. Human. This is clearly a shadow individual who was never human to begin with. You don't name yourself human <laughs> unless you're trying to be extraordinarily obvious about what you are. So this was a Venusian who was looking for an intergalactic hookup. We all know that, right? This is all bullshit. 
this is clearly what this was. Yeah, because I, mean, I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. <laughs> all the alien abduction stories from old were always the hot Venusian chicks. Like Venus always had the hot chicks is what it That's was. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's just it's Mars completely there. Got to step back a little bit. It's all very obvious, like a giant painting. It's all there later. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, all right, where where are we going? Where would you like to start? Because you know damn well that I'm looking for the weirdest stuff you've got. So, but some of the science stuff too. I am interested in Tesla and Marconi and all of the other people that were trying to contact Mars. But um, how do you want to start this? Because this book goes all over the place, and we both <laughs> agreed beforehand that we didn't want to talk about the ancient history of Mars stuff. Yeah, well, we'll go back not too ancient. We'll, let's go back to 1877 because that's a good that's a good starting point for why there was so much widespread belief in intelligent life. Actually, I'll go back a little bit further. I'll go back a little further to um, the uh, Origin of Species, which was published earlier in the 1800s, uh, I think mid-1800s, Charles Darwin, of course. Mm -hmm. And so when he had the idea of evolution, uh, that notion got picked up by other scientists and astronomers. One of them uh, was a French astronomer named Camille Flammarion, who took the idea and said, well, evolution would, would uh, pertain to the entire universe, not just Earth. So in his mind, it would apply to a planet like Mars that had that's a smaller planet than Earth, meaning that it would have cooled sooner and therefore begun its evolution um, earlier. And if that's the case, that life that would have formed on Mars would be further along in its evolutionary path and therefore more advanced, and more intelligent. So a lot of people believed in life on other planets at this point in the universe. There, this was sort of a common belief. So taking the idea of evolution meant, okay, well, if there is life out there, it's probably much more advanced than we are, and, and it must be much better in that case. It must, must, must be much more civilized and uh, more intelligent than we are, because that's, again, the progression of things, ideally. Mm -hmm. So then along comes an uh, Italian astronomer named Giovanni Scaparelli in 1877, who's using his telescope, and he sees uh, this network of lines on Mars, and he calls them canali, which translates to channels which would just mean that, you know, water formed these channels, right? But it got mistranslated somewhere along the line, maybe by the media, not quite sure, um, as canals. And canals is much different than channels because canals means that uh, it, was, it was done uh, artificially. So some, some life form had to have made it. And to make canals across a whole planet would have been considered an extraordinary feat, a huge feat of engineering. It took 10 years to make the Suez Canal on Earth, which had just been completed recently. So knowing how long it took us humans to make something that was just a small canal, um, and then seeing that a whole planet was covered with them, they thought these people must be giants and, you know, strong and, and smart and just, you know, these brilliant beings covering their planet with canals. That was one of the things I was going to go into with you is the crazy descriptions that everybody had of all the way all the everybody thought Martians would look. But go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So so that first of all, they thought, you know, they must be bigger and stronger. That's one thing. Um, they thought that there was vegetation growing along the edges of these canals. They could see color differences around these lines. And this idea just kind of spread and spread. And it got picked up mostly and really popularized by Percival Lowell um, in the late 1800s. Uh, and Lowell came from a very wealthy family in the Boston area. Uh, Lowell, Massachusetts is named after the Lowell family. They were big in textiles. Um, Percival grew up loving astronomy, went to Harvard. Their whole family was entrenched in Harvard. Um, 
you know, was on the board at Harvard and all those good things. And so he was expected to sort of carry on the family business and the textiles and all that stuff. And he had no interest in it. So he went overseas out to the Far East for maybe a decade or so, came back. And uh, at this time, he was hearing um, that Scaparelli was going blind and would no longer be able to see Mars. And so he thought he would pick up the torch and he could make his name not in textiles, but he could really make the Lowell name much stronger if he could be the guy that could be the first one to communicate with these Martians. So he moved out to Flagstaff, Arizona, um, where he could build an observatory on the mountain, which he called Mars Hill, which would be 7,000 feet in elevation. He'd be far away from any city lights, any interference, be nicely elevated, and he could get better views of Mars from there. So that's what he did in 1894. And from there, he started drawing maps of Mars, and he would see the lines change constantly. So it's like, oh, they're, they're constantly making new canals. And he developed this theory that it was a dying planet and that they were trying to uh, distribute water from the polar caps to help you know, keep everybody on Mars alive, just distributing water to everyone who needs it. So this was this theory. He was lecturing all over the, the country. He was writing books on it. He's constantly doing articles. Um, and so it just spread and spread. And then you've got scientists who are trying to figure out ways that we could communicate with these Martians. Like, how can we let them know that we're here? What can we do to signal them? And so then you have all these scientists developing these different ideas, whether it was like giant mirrors, like hundreds of giant mirrors spread out somewhere that could reflect lights and send signals to them. And then we'd have to wait for them to find a way to return the message to us. Um, or, uh, you know, was it digging ditches and, and, and uh, in the desert and lining them on fire, making them in the shape of a, a Pythagorean theorem, yeah, for example. So you could speak to them in the mathematics language. Recommended making like a winking eye or something like that in the desert or something like that. Who was that? Yeah, that was another guy, uh, Robert Wood from Johns Hopkins. Yeah. Who thought if we could have giant like canvases spread out over the desert and then you could make them black and you could roll them up and unroll them it would look like a big wink from earth. <laughs> and he thought this might be more cost efficient than like a giant mirrors, you know? Mm -hmm. So they were looking for how can we do this efficiently so we can get the funding. Of course, he never got the funding, but, but these were all theories that were being put out there. You know, how can we do this? One of my favorites was a guy, professor from Amherst named David Todd, who wanted to build a hot air balloon that would rise, uh, ascend 50,000 feet in the air. Um, like, you know, uh, a David Blaine type of stunt, you know, <laughs> so he'd go 50,000 feet in the air in a hot air balloon. And there he thought he could get away again from all the interference, kind of like what Lowell was doing, get away from the interference of the cities. Um, and he could receive the Martian signals better there. And he thought, you know, he thought, again, the Martians must think that we're dumb for not getting all their messages. And so maybe if I go this high, I can finally get them and we can talk to these guys. Um, that was 1909 when he thought about that. He couldn't do it then. He tried it again in 1920. Uh, failed again then, but I mean, he had the government trying to help out. He had like a you know chief balloonist of the country or whatever that title was. You know, he yeah. had serious people trying to help him develop this thing. It wasn't just like a whim. And he did a few test flights. He just never did the full fifty thousand ascension. So, what what about Tesla? What was his big thing? With how how was his method of trying to contact Mars? Because from what I remember, him and Marconi were the two big ones that were trying to do it. Wasn't was it France that was offering some kind of a reward? For and you talk, you put you got talk about it briefly in your book about how they were offering like a hundred thousand francs or something like that to the first person who could talk to aliens. Yes, um, so I'll back up first to Tesla. So in 1899, Tesla he had his lab at the top of uh, Pikes Peak in Colorado Springs, and he thought that uh, that he got a message 
from Mars. And he, he got a signal that he thought wasn't coming from Earth, this, this wavelength. And so he, um, he said that they got a message that said one, two, three. And he was convinced it was from Mars. And from there, uh, he really set out to, to find a way to communicate with extraterrestrial life. Like that became a mission of his pretty much for the rest of his life. Um, and there was a prize that was offered by a, a French woman who had a fortune that she left behind in the name of her son who was into astronomy. And uh, it was called the Guzman Prize. And, uh, and, the, and the prize was going to be for the first person to establish contact with extraterrestrial life. However, there was a catch. And that contact had to be with any planet besides Mars. And the reason for that was because Mars was deemed too easy. People thought that this was going to happen any time now. So she set the prize to, uh, to, to be more of a challenge. Okay. <laughs> Mars was too easy to talk to. Uh, so Tesla, you know, Tesla thought at one point that he had a way to do this. And he was convinced that he would win the prize. This was, you know, late in his life. Um, he said he was going to submit his whole plan and that for sure he would, he would win this thing. Uh, he said, I'm just as sure that the prize will be awarded to me as I are, as if I already had it in my pocket. They've got to do it. It means that it will be possible to convey several thousand units of horsepower to other planets, regardless of the distance. This discovery of mine will be remembered when everything else I have done is covered with dust. Of course, he didn't get the prize. Um, we don't even know if he made the submission or maybe it never made it to the Academy. We don't know. Um, all we know is that the prize was eventually awarded to the moon landing crew of Apollo 11 in 1969. I'm guessing the French Academy just figured like, you know what, this is good enough. <laughs> this is yeah, but they didn't contact any, any, any alien life. They just landed on the moon. So Yeah, no, like, <laughs> I think they were like, you know what, this has gone on long enough. And, and these guys did something pretty awesome. So let's just give it to them. But I, I just love the idea that Mars was thought to be too easy of a, a goal. <laughs> I guess, yeah. 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 <laughs> well, with all these things, I can see where these people are coming from with their ideas, like the ideas of canals being built on Mars and the idea of taking water from the polar regions and trying to spread it out across the planet. You know, with with the abilities that we had back then and understanding of things, I could see where um, these ideas were coming into play and how they made sense, how they come up with the way that Martians would look because everybody had a different opinion about it is something I don't quite understand. But you know, this idea of, okay, I can see there's canals there. The canals are moving. You know, these, these are obviously, I, I use the term man-made, but you know what I mean? Um, so I, I could see where these people were coming from when they would see this stuff and they would, you know, come up with that idea. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, all right, we, we really, we don't know anything really. So we're just going to try pulling at straws to see what happens. So then Marconi comes along and he, he thinks he's created a machine but it turned out he was actually hearing something from a naval base or something like that? Yeah, he thought, so he also thought he had a signal that came from Mars, just a wavelength that was nothing that was that he had ever seen. It was 1920, by the way. And he looked into it for a few years and felt convinced again, like, hey, we've got this thing. Um, the people that worked with him were all supporting the idea. And then he found out a few years later there was actually a wavelength coming from Schenectady, New York, from a secret project that GE was doing. That's where they were headquartered. Mm -hmm. So that was a little disappointing. Um, but for a while, you know, there was some excitement. And, you know, this, as all this was going on, I mean, the other thing to keep in mind is sort of the context of what life was like at this time, right? It's sort of the turn of the century in terms of technology. I mean, you had all these new technologies. Marconi, obviously, you know, 
was a big part of that with the uh, development of the radio. Mm -hmm. um, Tesla, of course, had all sorts of amazing developments that are why we live the way we live today. Uh, you had television starting in the 1920s, the first television. Um, just all kinds of new scientific breakthroughs were going on, you know. So as these things, you know, the telephone, the late 1800s, all these things were kind of magical. You know, the idea that you could talk to someone like, like you and I are right now is a crazy thought. Yeah. You know, light. I mean, the, the Wright brothers in the 1900s, all these things were just never thought to be possible years before that. And then lo and behold, you know, you have this these few decades where all these new inventions are coming around. So the idea of Mars having intelligent life and maybe we can talk to them, too. It's not that crazy. You know, like, well, sure, this is happening now. Maybe this is the next big thing that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, it, it doesn't seem so crazy when you think about in that context and the way they thought about the martians you know because you mentioned what they might look like they thought like you know i mentioned before that they thought they were tall um Ruru said that she was seven feet tall and others were taller some people thought they might be 10 to 20 feet tall and the reason for that was you know it's all based on what they knew about the planet so they knew that mars had uh lower gravity you know one-third gravity that we have on earth and so therefore they thought people would grow taller um it's probably what would happen if if we go colonize Mars and reproduction is possible, which we should talk about that as well. That's pretty interesting stuff. But if we if someone grew up on Mars, they probably would grow taller because gravity is not pushing them down as much. Yeah, so you've got that's a, possible. You've got in here uh, it's the little area in here. You got those funny looking Martians. You got Professor Richard Gregory, a British astronomer, believed people with immense chests or folks with gills like fishes could survive the rarefied atmosphere. Gills, I don't understand, because there's no water on Mars, but hey, whatever. Um, <laughs> Swedensborg, the 18th century philosopher, claimed that Martians were friendly and human-like, with yellow faces and black jaws. They lived peacefully and out, uh, out without divisive politics. Uh, Sir Robert Ball, the eminent English scientist, imagined Martians as having long noses and extremely long, thin arms. Uh these arms newspapers reported would allow Martians to touch the toes without stooping. Though slender, they would have yet to be strong enough to enable, enable him to scramble up the front of a house or on top of a tree by merely exerting their pulling power. And then you got H.G. Wells. You got all the thing about H.G. Wells talking about his, but his was all purely scientific, like science fiction based. And then you've got a big section of all these different, like you got one that looks like a Mothman, these weird skunk looking things <laughs> from different newspapers. Um, so the idea of like how people were trying to come up with how Martians might look like if Martians existed, it's it's strange for me because it's like we had nothing to base this on. It was just purely like what are these things going to look like? How would they look like in an alien environment? How would they evolve? But since you've brought it up, I guess we can bounce there. What what is the thing about reproducing on Mars? So it, it's it's not possible for humans to reproduce on Mars, or because of the gravity well, in the air. It's a big question. You know, you hear Elon Musk, I mean, even just a week ago, he was in the news again talking about putting humans on Mars in the, the very near future. Yeah. And the idea of colonizing Mars, you know, it's something that's been talked about, obviously, in science fiction for a long time. Yeah. But you hear about more seriously now. We need to get off this planet if we want to survive as a species. I mean, Stephen Hawking was saying the same thing, that basically it was inevitable that Earth would probably get hit by an asteroid at some point and wipe out all of life just sheer numbers the odds you figure that would happen at some point and so if we want to survive as a species we have to become an off-world species we have to learn to live elsewhere and mars is often considered the the place to go do that by various scientists right so it's pretty you know, much NASA the only place we can go there. to 
Well, there's a theory in the book of another spot, which we'll talk about as well, since we're on this topic now. But but the idea of going to Mars, Mars is a really, really horrible place to go. It's like, it's just not friendly to humans at all. And I've got a great part in the book uh, from a, uh, a uh, guy named Pascal Lee, Dr. Pascal Lee, who works with NASA and with SETI, brilliant guy. He talks about the five ways you would die on Mars starting from the the fast the fastest way which is like within seconds you know just the atmospheric pressure would just destroy you if your suit you know like the martian when the guy's suit gets a crack in it yeah. in the movie and it's like about to die i mean basically if you get a crack in your suit you, you're dead like in a second then you've got the radiation the, the solar radiation is horrible like that would actually be the the slowest way you would die just from the cancer um and then you've got the temperature I mean, there's just a lot of lot of things there that are not human friendly at all. So it's a bad place to go. If we were to go there, we'd probably have to live underground, you know, like a mole. Um, you'd have crater craters would be like, you know, I think you'd have property in the the walls of the craters is where you probably end up living, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so so there's a lot of things to consider. But the whole idea of like, okay, great, maybe we can go there and we can build these, you know, have uh, 3D printed uh, habitats built before we get there, and we can send all this this technology and infrastructure before humans go there. So when we get there, we have what we need to survive. That's all cool and exciting and great. But the question still remains, can we actually reproduce there? And we don't know for several reasons. One is it's never been tested. Um, you can't, you can't test having a baby in space because this is a huge ethical question because what are you doing? If it doesn't work, you're, you know, you're putting people at risk. You're, maybe destroying a, a child mm-hmm. so there's a lot of issues around that they've tried it with with uh with rats and you know with mice and with other small insects and there's there's been some studies which the book gets into with that but the whole thing is you know humans humans have survived all kinds of changes on this planet and this planet has, has gone through all kinds of changes right from environmental you know um just all sorts of things have happened over the course of billions of years but the one thing that's never changed is gravity Gravity has always been, you know, 1.0 is gravity here. And so suddenly you you take the one variable that's never changed on Earth, and that's what you switch up when you go to Mars. And so we don't know how uh, how it would work there. Can can a woman get pregnant? Like, would it even work? And if she does, how does that work? You know, can she? How does she give birth? Does it does it work as it would here? What complications might she encounter? Um, it's just a huge question that. No one's really done any studies on yet to, to find out the answers. And let's just assume it, it does work. Then, as we were talking about before, what does that person grow up to look like? You know, then we truly do become the Martians. So it's, a, it's kind of a fascinating question that when you hear about colonizing Mars, you don't hear much, people, you don't hear much about people being able to reproduce to actually have a colony. Um, otherwise, it would just be one generation and we'd all be dead. Yeah. And then we have to go back again, start over. <laughs> so, so it's kind of a, a fascinating question. I think... What's kind of fun is all these early ideas about Martians might eventually come to pass. You know, like these thoughts about tall Martians because of gravity and big chests because of the thin atmosphere. So they have to have larger chests to be able to breathe. And the long nose is also so that you could pull in uh, scents from afar that might take longer to get to otherwise, again, because of the atmospheric conditions. So all these thoughts of why they might look, the weird ways they might look, may come to pass if we actually get ourselves there and find ourselves growing up in that that atmosphere um, unless they can terraform which would take way too long and that's so far down the road but but here's the other thing you talked about where else would we go so one of the guys i spoke to 
um, in the book for the book. Uh, another brilliant guy I worked with NASA for years named uh, Jim Logan. He talked about uh, Deimos, which is one of the moons of Mars, being the most valuable real piece of real estate in the solar system. And he thought we'd be better off trying to go there. If we want to establish an off-world colony, we should go to Deimos. And his idea is to bore a hole through the center of that moon and live inside of that, uh, inside a space colony. So we create like uh, a space colony um, that would create artificial gravity to replicate Earth-like conditions. And then you could live inside of that, inside of the moon. And the moon would provide all the protection you would need from the cosmic radiation. So it'd be totally safe from that. And then you'd have this sort of revolving, you know, uh, space station that you could live in that recreates the Earth gravity. And so you could feel like you're at home inside the moon near Mars. And if you want to go down to Mars for like a weekend, you could maybe go down and hang out for there for a little bit and come back to your cozy place inside the moon. So that could happen. Didn't they, um, Joe, didn't they do that with the reboot of, um, shoot, what was the, uh, what was the uh, Philip K. Dick, um, Total Recall? Did you ever oh, see? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had the, uh, yes, the the one, well, they, in the original one, they were living on Mars, too. Yeah, I mean, they were living on Mars. Your ass, the yeah. Mars meme. Yeah. yeah, so the Schwarzenegger one, I didn't see the the, the remake of the adaptation because it didn't why? look good. But, <laughs> no, it looked pretty terrible. Yeah, basically they and and that idea has uh, they it's it's kind of interesting to me when when we're talking about Mars because there's a lot of similarities in some ways to storytelling with the moon too. I mean, obviously there isn't the variety, and I always think that's probably because and I don't. I'm not enough of a scientist to explain this, but I, I mean, I think it's the red color, um, you know, because I always wonder why the moon doesn't get the same kind of attention a lot of the planets get. But yes, they had that same idea where Mars has always kind of been this, you know, and then there's the little green men from uh, John Carter. So which to me is just, OK, he wanted to use an opposite color. So he picked the primary color because I don't know why the colors are all different and the sizes are all different either. It, it's it's so random. It's like people just make things up. But yes, they've had that idea of. Uh, in many ways, where you live under there and you, I don't think it'd be called terraforming, it'd be whatever atmosphere forming would be, where they were just keeping the pressure there to keep the air in. And if you dump the air, then suddenly your eyeballs explode out in hilarious fashion, as they found out when their helmets broke. So, yeah, that's not a new idea. Um, that's what you were asking to write about, Total Recall? Yeah, well, I thought in like the remake of it, like, was it the center of the planet or something like that? Because I remember they, they had, it wasn't like... Well, there was the alien technology in the center that if you activated it, not that you ever saw the aliens, that was actually one of the things I thought was most clever about that movie, is they just showed an alien-looking handprint, which you would infer would be the true Martians or something, that that activated the, uh, I think it made a volcano or something erupt with liquid into the air. And then that suddenly generated an atmosphere because that's Oxygen, how science yeah. works. You can terraform in 10 minutes. Uh, and then suddenly the planet was, oh, Earth too. I just um, want to reboot right chicks. You know, if, if, you know if, if that's what means chicks going to Mars happens, then I guess I'm kind of on board for that. But uh, They never did explain that either. That was another thing. I mean, she's just a mutant for some reason. Yeah, boy, there's so much in that movie that you just go, ah. We just never noticed that when we watched it. We just didn't notice it. They didn't bother to explain 80% of the weirdness of that movie. It's just there. It's just how it is. Like, why the mutations look the way they do. It's Mars. It's Benny's Mars. Arm. Yeah, it's it's Mars. Mars gives you three <laughs> boobs. And that's... But there were no green people on Mars, which I thought was the... As I was like, where is a green person? You just would naturally think, little green men from Mars. Why didn't one of the mutation people be green? 
Even Quato was just kind of shiny, but he wasn't green. Actually, he should have been green. That brings me to a question of Mark. If you can't answer this, this is totally fine because I'm just bringing this to you out of the blue. Do you know where the origin of little green men from Mars came from? Do you know? Do you remember where the first mention of that, where that all started, or anything like it's that? It's Burroughs. I I do actually. I had a whole uh, sidebar on that in the book. Um, you know, I have various sidebars to kind of touch on different little things. See, so, yeah, I had a section of if not Mars, where did little green men come from? Mm-hmm. Um, because there, there really aren't that many little green men mentions out there, you know, it's, but it's a weird thing because everyone just kind of thinks of it that way. Um, and it kind of goes back, you know, what I was able to trace back was there were some stories in the early 1800s um, that referred to like leprechauns as little green men. Um, and so that, that doesn't seem surprising. That seems kind of normal. Fairies were referred to uh, as having little green men. Um, again, 1800s, that would have been going on. Then there was a story in 1946 that was published in Weird Tales magazine um, that was called Mayaya's uh, Little Green Men, which was about little creatures who helped this woman clean and care for her family without being seen. And then a few years later, you have Marvin the Martian introduced. Um, and oh, yeah. he wasn't he wasn't really green, but his wardrobe was, but he was little. So it's like starting to kind of come into that. And then by the 50s, you have the whole UFO craze. Uh, in, in America, which is like in full swing. And then the press started using the term little green men to describe these creatures who might be, you know, scoping out the earth and their UFOs. Um, and so that's kind of, I think, where it started to stick. And there was a book in 1955, which I talked about, um, called Martians Go Home, which has billions of annoying little green men from Mars who just sort of teleport to earth and they call everyone Mac and Toots, which is kind of funny. Um, <laughs> You know, a little bit later, the Flintstones, you have the Great Kazoo, yeah. uh, who's a little green man, although he's not necessarily from Mars, but he's an alien. Um, so I think it just sort of stemmed from that, and it's just become part of culture that they're little green men. But the funny thing is, is if anything, they're, they would be tall green men or whatever color. <laughs> but, uh, but little was, was never really thought much of by scientists. Um, little just came from some weird folklore, I think. That was the thing I had seen about the John, I think it was John Carter, where Burroughs referred to, they interpret it now as little green men, but he said they were 10 to 12 feet tall, which is in line with the idea that they would be bigger. But somehow that then, I think you're right, it's kind of a leprechaun fairy thing where it's gotten mixed in with kind of fairy tales to suddenly make them really small because little helpers are small, like the Keebler elves. I don't really understand that either, but that's... Maybe it's just also less menacing i don't know <laughs> who knows I guess, if they were trying to yeah, not make it as scary them. you know it was scary in the 50s when people thought ufos from mars were coming to attack us and well that's that's why the idea that they're and... bigger and, and stronger is is interesting to me because you would think that psychologically people would want to diminish them so that we could you know go and if they show up we're going to kick their ass but instead these things are big and strong it's like okay that's terrifying but all right sure so Let's go into the weird, um, unless there's other directions you want to go into. <laughs> um, where do we start with this? We've got the article in here that comes out of the Salt Lake Gazette from 19... What year was that? 1912. 1912. I was off by a year. That Mars is a giant thinking vegetable. Um, this, story was, this story wasn't thought of as serious. It was thought of as a joke, though, right? This story, so the story was a hoax, yes. Okay. But, I mean, you read the article, and, and I have the article printed in the book, which is really fun. The headline is Mars Peopled by One Vast Thinking Vegetable. And, and as with so many of these articles, and you described a few earlier, they have great illustrations. 
which was really fun to see this giant eyeball like on this tenuous fiber that's protruding from Mars uh-huh. looking over the whole planet. And, uh, it's very psychedelic. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and it's great because they, I mean, they wrote this thing in a convincing way. You know, and it talks off the, the, the subhead, just to give you a little bit more context, says interesting theory of Professor Campbell of Lick Observatory that explains the canals, eyes, and other puzzling problems of our neighbor planet. So this Professor Campbell, uh, William Wallace Campbell, was the director of California's Lick Observatory. Um, he did not believe Mars was a vegetable. They just used his name. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, it starts to give a little bit of credibility because they're using a real professor's name at a real observatory. And then they're going into some of the history and they're talking about, you know, the canals and, and the vegetation theories that people are seeing in the atmosphere. I mean, they use a lot of language that gets very scientific and it's in line with a lot of the theories that scientists are talking about. So it kind of sounds reasonable. And then it gets into the fact that that Mars has developed um, just it talks about like how carnivorous plants on Earth, you know, have animal like abilities. Right. So like a, a Venus flytrap, you know, it's it eats bugs. That's how it's evolved. And so its theory is that the evolution of vegetation on Mars gave it a nervous system and intelligence. And it became just one giant vegetable that has to sustain itself. <laughs> and it has this eyeball that, that scientists thought these white spots on the planet were some sort of clouds, but it says, no, those were eyeballs. <laughs> and, uh, and it could extend from Mars and watch over it, and watch over Earth and the other planets, stars, the whole universe. And I mean, it's just, it just gets crazier and crazier. But it just kind of shows like theories were really crazy back then. And this one was a hoax, but it was kind of playing off of that whole obsession that, that we had with Mars and, and what might be lurking out there you know what might be going on on that planet so i i just love it as like this sort of wacky example of what could be uh and i'm sure some people bought it you know oh yeah <laughs> it's not like it said it was a hoax it, that was who knows when that was revealed officially but um you know it's fun and one of the, the one of the things i love about all this stuff is that you see what's going on in the early 1900s the 1920s and so in the 30s. And so by the time you get to 1938, you know, you mentioned H.G. Wells earlier. When you get to Orson Wells doing his broadcast of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds, the panic that ensued, you know, on October 30th, 1938, people completely believing that Martians were attacking the Earth. You know, when I this was a story I think most people are probably somewhat aware of that this happened in America. Um, panic in the streets, Martians were attacking. And it just sounds kind of crazy, like, geez, people believe all that. But then when you start realizing, like, oh, my God, people have been hearing for decades, decades, that Martians were going to talk to us any time now from the smartest people on the planet. Suddenly, it doesn't seem that weird that they might believe that this was really happening. You know, they missed the introduction. You know, they people were, were listening to the radio. They were listening to Charlie McCarthy and, and Edgar Bergen, uh, a ventriloquist, which, which, by the way, is really weird. They were listening to ventriloquism on the radio. And yeah. it was really popular. <laughs> I don't understand that, but it's a different time, a different era. So whatever. But but that's what people listen to. They listen to, to ventriloquism on the radio. And so uh, by the time they got to H.G. Wells, who was a smaller program, a smaller station on CBS, uh, they missed the introduction. And, you know, you had the war, World War II brewing over in Europe and you had emergency breakthroughs, which were not uncommon. Um, so things kind of sounded reasonable, you know, mm-hmm. and then you have this crazy thing going on, <laughs> but this, you know, the stuff in the book kind of helps you understand like the context of why that may have happened. So do you got any other crazy stuff like that in here? 
along those lines? Well, I love the fact that despite the panic that happened and people running in the streets and fleeing their homes and truly believing that they were going to die any second from Martians, it, it happened again 11 years later. And you would think that this wouldn't happen again because they would have learned their lesson. But it happened again in uh, Quito, Ecuador in 1949. And a couple of radio DJs thought they could get some publicity for their station if they did what Orson Welles did. <laughs> so they thought, that's a great idea. Let's do that. So they they sort of restructured the story to fit their own location, just like Wells did. You know, he took it from London to New Jersey. Um, and uh, and these guys made it sound very local to Quito, Ecuador, the small village. Uh, they had people impersonating the, the mayor and the local priest and you know, all these people sounding like this was really going on. It got it was so realistic sounding that the whole police force was running, rushing out to like the neighboring town where they said the Martians were attacking to help them fight. So the police force like fled to go help people were again, racing in the streets, crying. Um, and when they found out that this thing was not real, it was just, you know, a show. And they didn't, by the way, they didn't do what Wells did and at least announce this was a dramatization. They didn't bother with that part. They just went straight for it. Then you had everybody really getting upset. It's so they all banded together in a mob and they marched down to the, radio station and uh they start you know throwing throwing rocks at the radio station they're throwing uh i guess like sticks of fire torches or whatever but basically <laughs> they they set it on fire and because they had clogged up the streets the fire department couldn't get to the place in time and 15 people ended up dying so the martians did kill 15 uh earthlings on that day wow <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy that's a lot of pissed off people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So as far as like weird theories of what Mars was, is there anything else like that though? Uh, like a vegetable, you mean? Yeah. This along those lines <laughs> of, of strange, like what, what is out there? I think, um, you know, I don't know that there's other forms that Mars would take. Um, but you did have, you know, you just have more of the theories about what the Martians might look like. And there were some good ones by uh, Hugo Gernsback. Um, and Hugo Gernsback, for people who don't know, there's, if you've ever heard of the Hugo Awards for science fiction, yeah. it's named after him. He was a magazine publisher in the early 1900s, mostly the 1920s and 30s. And this was a guy who predicted all sorts of inventions like television, air conditioning, really scientific mind, but he wrote. He wrote stories about it. He just had ideas and he wrote stories about it. And he's the guy who actually invented the term science fiction. So he wrote about what he thought Martians would look like, again, based on evolution. And there's there's pictures in the book. Um, but he kind of really had this this popular idea of, of the tall, you know, skinny legged Martian with the big chest and the, the, the long snout like nose and the big ears and the big feet. And there's all these great illustrations that were done to support the articles. Um, so he's kind of the guy that I think mostly... Um, had these ideas of what Martians might look like back then. So, moving on a little bit, I guess, you've got a section here that talks about uh, did life on Mars fall to Earth 13,000 years ago? This has been a reoccurring thing throughout science fiction and throughout science period where this idea that Mars once had life on it and a meteor hit it and a chunk of Mars landed on Earth, which in turn infested Earth with, with, with life, I guess, for lack of a better term. So, do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So that rock was found. Um, I think that was found in the in the eighties. 
uh, I think 1984, they found this rock in Antarctica. And they would go down there looking for meteorites and so forth often. And they found this one. And, and uh, they thought they found evidence of like a, a tiny little fossil from Mars to show that there was evidence of life. And, you know, this, this took them a while to actually make an announcement. So they found it in 1984. But it wasn't until um, the mid-90s, the early 90s, when they finally made an announcement. In fact, it was 1996 when they made an announcement. And President Clinton actually stood in the, the South Lawn, the White House, and announced this finding uh and he said that that they thought they found life on mars and you know he said if this discovery is confirmed it will surely be one of the most stunning insights into our universe that scientist has ever uncovered now he was a you know kind of jumping the gun a little bit because the scientists weren't convinced that this was evidence of life yet um they didn't know if they'd really found a micro fossil or not but they kind of thought they might i mean it was what they saw was like tiny um they they compare it to like one one thousandth the diameter of a human hair. So if you can even imagine that. So um, if there was something that was really small, but it ended up. I mean, I think they ultimately determined that no, there was nothing really there. However, there is a cool story in the book about uh, the possibility that life was found in the seventies on the Viking mission. Um, so Viking was the first lander sent to Mars, basically the first robot on Mars in nineteen seventy six. And they had several different life experiment, uh, life detection experiments on Viking. And there were, there were two, so Viking 1 and Viking 2, both on separate parts of Mars. And one of these experiments um, is called the labeled release experiment, just kind of a, a weird name, uh, very scientific. But uh, basically, the, the two experimenters who worked on it, I spoke with both of them. And to this day, they believe that they found life on Mars. And they believe that because the results of their test came back positive. Basically, what they would do is they scoop up a soil, a sample of soil, and they would drop a uh, like a nutrient into it that was labeled with radioactivity. And if some sort of gas was then uh, kicked back out, labeled with that radioactivity, that would that would indicate that something consumed that nutrient. And so they got these positive results back, and and they couldn't believe it. You know, like oh my god, it worked. And they had tested this you know, done all kinds of tests to prove that this was going, that any results would be true. Um, so they were convinced that their science was, was accurate and that their testing was, was well proven. And, and they ran a control test, um, which would make sure that it wasn't due to some other uh, chemical reaction or something. And, and that came back uh, negative, meaning that their positive results should stand. Um, so they were ecstatic. I mean, obviously this was like, oh my God, we found it. <laughs> There's something here. But NASA disagreed and wouldn't let him announce it at the time. Uh, they said, don't say that you found life. We don't know that this is biological. They thought there might be some exotic chemical reaction causing the positive results. We just don't know for sure. So he had to keep quiet. Um, it wasn't until that announcement was made by President Clinton and this idea of possibly finding life in the, in the um, meteorite that he finally came out and said, well, you know, I think I found life back in, on the Viking mission in the 70s. And he's written papers, you know, to this day, he writes papers on this, um, defending his results. And there have been a lot of theories that kind of show what else it could have been, but none of them have actually thoroughly disproved the results he got, which is really fascinating. I mean, they, that, like I said, that was the first uh, lander on Mars, and they've got other rovers obviously looking for evidence of, of ancient life or, or even uh, current life. But what they haven't been able to do is really dig deep into Mars to where the ice is and where water is, and when you get away from that cosmic radiation, 
to where life could be thriving. And so maybe you know, I think it's really exciting that there could still be something found once they're able to do that. I mean, if you think about life on Earth, most of life on Earth is underground. You know, well, we've got life here everywhere. We've got life you yes. know, next to volcanic thermal vents under the ocean where there shouldn't be life. You've got this weird exactly. fungus growing inside of Chernobyl that shouldn't be alive and shouldn't be able to exist under those circumstances. So, I mean, you know, Jeff Goldblum, life finds a way. So, <laughs> Exactly. But, it's very know, true. It's just, uh, it's, it's not real far-fetched that microbiological life could exist on Mars down below the soil at some point, because Mars does have water. We know that now. And right. usually where you have water, you have life in some way, shape, or form. So Yeah, it's the ingredients. Exactly. I mean, in volcanoes, too, seems like a, a good candidate for life to be thriving. You know, it'd be a little bit damper in there. Um, and so you have these conditions. You know, it's a place that we can't get to. You can't get the rovers inside. Uh, you can't get the rovers inside a volcano. Um, there's a thought, you know, that Pascal Lee talks about maybe when we can get, you know, drones, helicopters style machinery to go up and, and descend inside of a, a volcano, maybe we'd find something there. And that's something that could happen, you know, sometime relatively soon. I mean, the Perseverance rover that's on its way right now has uh, Ingenuity, the, the helicopter, which will be sort of a, you know, a pilot case uh, just to see if we can actually achieve flights. And from there, it'll just get more developed. I Yeah, I have a question, Mark, as far as the book, because when, uh, when Roger was saying the book is immense and that I was, uh, you know, there's so many stories about Mars. Have you found... Because it seems like, and maybe this is a pop culture perception, so maybe you you have found this to be different in your research. Mars seems to be the dominant planet outside of Earth, obviously, that has this type of attention, these types of stories, this type of material. Are there any other of the planets? I mean, obviously there are. I'm not going to say the other planets don't have connections. There's connections in mythology to things like Venus, Saturn. So those things do exist. But it does not seem like the metric ton of stories and mythology and science fiction revolves around any of the other non-Earth planets the way it does for Mars. Have you found that or are you finding that or have you heard of similar stuff to the same degree is what I'm getting at because Mars just seems to be way ahead of most of the other planets as far as all the different stories and interesting little details and, and even just general interest. Mars seems to trump everything. Uh, have you found that to be the case or have you found that other planets are kind of close to it in terms of interest? No, I think you're right. I mean, I think there were some I actually get into. I have another little sidebar about a guy who believed more about life on Venus. Um, and you hear a little bit about some early theories of life on Venus from around the same era, the early 1900s. But for the most part, yeah, it's Mars. Um, and part of that is, well, so there's a few things. One, it's the closest to us, right? It's it's our, our closest neighbor. Um, most like Earth in terms of being a solid planet, um, as opposed to like a gaseous planet, gaseous planet. And then you just have, I think, you know, you have science informing science fiction and science fiction informing science going back and forth, right? So scientists would, would excite the imagination of writers who would then write about Mars. And so much of that comes from those early observations, you know, the idea of canals on Mars and what they could see, like they could see that. And so they had these ideas and Percival Lowell popularized it so much that that inspires more science fiction writing. I mean, John Carter of Mars, John Carter starts off in a cave in Arizona, which was, I'm sure, inspired by the fact that Lowell was based in Arizona, you know? So you have that kind of pop culture coming out of, of real science. And, you know, I have a quote from a guy, a uh, historian at the Lowell Observatory, who says, like, it's not like you ever hear about 
invaders from Saturn. It's always from Mars. You know, it's just sort of rooted in pop culture at that point. Ack, ack, and ack, then, ack, 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 ack. <laughs> yeah. And, and then those those stories, I mean, those those science fiction stories excite the imagination of upcoming scientists, you know, the future, the next generation of scientists who want to do those things that they read about. You know, that's that's how you get the American rocketry program born. You know, the people who read about Jules Byrne um, and had ideas. You know, Elon Musk, I'm sure, read a lot about these things and had his vision. And now he's pushing for it. And those things will, I'm sure, inspire new new writers, you know, to write about science fiction, what his vision might look like for real. So it's an interesting sort of symbiotic relationship that I think just keeps keeps it going, you know, keeps Mars interesting that way and you know it's now it's the place that we can go to you know we, we haven't gone other than the moon we haven't gone to any other heavenly body i mean it's it's mars well between mars and the moon mars is the more have you know hospitable of the two to be able to set up colonies and so forth because at least it does have a gravity somewhat like earth the moon has no gravity like earth really i mean it's it's so light there that like you could go vacation on Mars for, I mean, on the moon for a weekend. You can't li- really live on Mars for extended periods of time because it affects the body so much. I mean, on the moon, yeah, you can't, you can't stay on the moon for super long periods of time. Whereas Mars, between the two, you would have a better chance. So you can at least set up domes. There is a gravity there. It does have some kind of atmosphere for the most part. But, you know, it's, that, that's really the only place we could go unless you head out further and, like, get to Jupiter's moons or something like that. You know, that's, right. that's pretty much it. You know, I think Gamadine has – I think it's Gamadine that has water or is it Europa? Which one of them? One of them is – I think Europa. And yeah, I should yeah. say that we do – we have sent spacecraft there as well. I shouldn't say it's only Mars. But, yeah, um, but yeah, Europa is an interesting – I mean, there's lots to talk about maybe finding life on Europa because, like you said, there is water. That's where I but, think yeah, we'd find it at far. because – they found it the surface of it's frozen, but underneath there's warmed oceans underneath it that are heated by volcanoes. So you've got heat, you've got water. There's a good possibility that if there is life in the universe, I think that's where we'll find it at. We'll find it on one of Jupiter's moons or probably that one, to be honest with you. It'd be neat to have a science fiction series or like Sequest or something like that based on searching, like a submarine searching underneath that ocean to find what they find there. But, um, yeah, I don't think there's pretty yeah. much any place else we could really go in the universe that's it's- even close to hospitable. Well, it's just so far. I mean, just to go to Mars, I mean, and, you know, let's assume technology gets better down the road and we could get there faster. Yeah. But right now, it'd probably take about six months. And That's six not months, real bad, though, really. Well, you know? it's it's not. I mean, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, you could I, I talked about this in the book where it's not like it's unusual to the human uh, the human story. I mean, people would take boats. It would be six month journeys, you know, yeah. to you'd have to go around like to, to go from uh, the Eastern part of the United States to the Western side, you'd have to go down below the tip of South America, you know, so yeah. that was like a six month journey and people survived it on a boat, which sounds just horrible, you know, but, but the, the difference is like in space, you know, one of the questions is, is again, it comes down to the time and cosmic radiation and what can we do to protect people on their journey from not, getting cancer, you know, dying soon after they arrive. I mean, you hear about people on the space station and they've sort of tested that. And space station still has plenty of protection. But, um, you know, one of the astronauts who was there for almost a year had to come back a little before then. And he felt he felt the effects quite a bit when he got back. And so you wonder, okay, well, what does that do to a human for six months in space? So part of it's, you know, can we handle it mentally? I think 
I think we could get around that. Can we handle it physically? I'm sure they'll figure out ways, but it's another challenge to overcome. So then to talk about your rope as like, well, that's even fur that's a lot further. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, you're talking Arthur C. Clarke stuff there. Um, yeah. But really, Although I should point out they did make a movie called Europa Report, which I saw, which is actually pretty good, exactly about the idea of going to Europa and finding life there. And it is, from what I understand, again, I'm certainly no type of NASA scientist whatsoever, but it does seem like it is relatively aligned with how it would actually go. So there is actually that's that movie is not that old. I think it's only four or five 2012. Years. So uh, it's yeah. it's relatively new compared to you know like the the what is it the one where they have the the spacecraft goes into the moon's eye and then cheese comes out so it's it's newer than that <laughs> a trip to the moon yes exactly yeah i never remember the title just that goofy image of the moon with a rocket stuck in its eye going ah yeah. you know that's a great classic image yeah george Melies. so do you, do you want to do you mind jumping over your website and talking about a couple of things on there and maybe some stuff from your other books do you can you want to do that yeah all right, sure. I'm going to ask you. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot, and in, if you can't find it, I can edit this out of the show. But you do have a, a story on here called "Chin Up: Headless Portraits in the Victorian Age." Um, yeah, <laughs> this this is nuts. I had no idea there was this much like this weirdness involving Victorian age photography. Like, like they didn't have Photoshop back then, and how they manipulated these things. So. I, it's- I love it. I mean, those images are so amazing. And yeah, the fact that they did that without Photoshop just shows the creativity and ingenuity that these photographers had with, you know, with the camera and with the way they could develop things and double exposures. Um, it's yeah, it's really creepy and, and well done. Joe, I just this, a link over to it. <laughs> and this came Twitter. out of like, I mean, you know, around that time, a big thing was spirit photography. Uh-huh. You know, where you would have, uh, you'd see a ghost stand beside you or behind you. And people believe that, you know, spiritualism was, was huge back then. So people believe that the camera was like this great new technology that could help us bridge our two worlds, you know, that help bridge us be- beyond the veil and bring people back to us. Um, so a lot of people believe that. And then, you know, these photographers figured out ways to play with double exposure and with the the plates that they were using and the development process to create this effect. And then, then you just kind of, you know, keep playing with that and like, oh, look, I can I can make it so that I, I don't have a head and I'm holding my head in my hand. I mean, George Melies, we just talked about, did the same thing on film. Yeah. One of his one of his brilliant films was uh, the four uh, forgetting the title, the four men or the four heads or something. I'm screwing that up. But basically, he comes out and he takes his head off and puts it on a table and the head is looking at him and, and smiling and singing and comes back and does it again. Eventually, he's got four heads on tables. Um, as he's keeps coming back out and he just played with the film, you know, and I, I can't imagine what that must've been like in like 1900 watching something like that. having never seen anything like that before? But this was a guy who was a magician who basically brought magic to film, you know, his special effects. So yeah, it's, uh, I, like, I love that stuff. It's fascinating. You have this picture of this guy. It's a clown holding his own head and it's creepy as hell. <laughs> it's such yeah, a well, weird photo. Enough, right? Yeah. They're creepy on their own, especially from that era. And then, then you've got the head coming off. Then you got, <laughs> you know, William Henry Wheeler holding his head on a stick as he sits there, you know? Well, I mean, some of you can, and they like, have those, they have those classic Victorian, you know, poses too, where there's no smile. You know, it's, everything's very serious. Yeah. So they're, they're these crazy poses. They're done very seriously. 
I'm always impressed with this type of stuff. This is almost like with CG and movies now where I'm more impressed when I go back and watch crappy movies. And I'm like, well, you know what, though? They didn't have computers for this. They had to figure out how this stuff stuff would work practically, and they managed to do it. So even if the rest of the movie is junk, when I see a really good practical special effect, I'm always impressed because I sit there and go, somebody had to conceive and execute that. And man, that's a lot. This is the same thing is is you are constrained by the tools of the time, which are very simple and what they relied on was somebody to be able to perceive what it could look like and then bend the tools to achieve it. And that is always more impressive than a two-minute Photoshop job. And that's coming from somebody who does a lot of two-minute Photoshop jobs. It's lazy work most of the time, I can tell you, not compared to this stuff. Yeah, they were, like I said, they were very creative, you know, very artful. Um, it is. It's really cool. I had the same feeling that you just said, too. I, I was Clash of the Titans from 1981 was on TV last night, so I was watching for a little bit. And I had the exact same thoughts, like, wow, this is it's pretty cool how they made that, you know? <laughs> it was all I was just – there was something I just watched, which is a low-budget uh, full moon movie uh, called Dr. Mordred. And there's a scene – there's only one scene where they use some stop motion with the skeletons of, uh, of dinosaurs. And this is a low-budget movie that started off as a Doctor Strange adaptation, and then they lost the rights to Doctor Strange and made it as Doctor Strange, you know, variation – and this, I looked at the compositing at the feet of the dinosaurs and I was stunned at how good it was because this is a low budget movie. There is no computer. This is 92. So computers for this type of movie. No, you're not doing it. And those guys had to really line it up. And it's pretty flawless. That is always going to be. Don't get me wrong. I love Jurassic Park. It's a great movie because it's a great movie. But that's always going to be in Clash of the Titans is another great example to be able to have the Medusa scene work the way it does. Or uh, the, the Kraken be as magnificent, even though you know that thing doesn't exist, that it's a stop motion you know, clay puppet. It looks magnificent and it functions so well. That is always going to beat out two clicks of a mouse to say go from A to B. Just always will. Agreed. Oh, you know what I forgot to ask you about with the Mars stuff? I hate doing this and going back and backtracking. The cultural phenomena of Mars in the movies. Um the, you had the um, the Santa Claus Conquers the Martians movies, and you had all these strings of weird, like, Satan on Mars movies and things like that. Um, the cultural significance of how it popped into pop culture and what made it made it suddenly, like, everything was from Mars. You had movies, Teenagers from Mars and so forth. I know we're backtracking a little bit, but I really wanted to touch in on this. Um at what point, like, what what generated all that? Like, what, what, like especially, like, the Santa Claus Conquers the Martians you know, that's a really trippy movie. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's it's great. It's horribly great. <laughs> did, did you know? Do you know what? Do you know anything about that movie or whatever, or how it all came about, or what it was? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I have that one covered in the book for sure. Um, I mean, that came together. They did that in ten days. Uh, oh my god! It's, it's super, <laughs> you know, super low budget. I mean, the Martians are basically, you know, men with their their green face paint. They've got. They've got helmets that just had like ex extendable antenna that I think they just pull off a TV set. You know, um, there's all sorts of crazy things that went into it. But I think, you know, in terms of the Mars movies, you know, you had you know, Mars had been in pop culture, obviously, for for quite a while, you know, through science fiction and so forth. And then then you had um, Flash Gordon goes to Mars or conquers the Martians or conquers Mars. And that got so that was a serial in the thirties, the like 19, I think beginning of 1938. And then after the whole war, of the world thing that we talked about, 
universal re-release it as a one a single film. Um, they they like rushed it out, they edited it down the serial, put it out as a, a just a regular full length feature film, just sort of capitalizing on all the excitement around Mars given the past week, you know. So they got that out right away, and then you have you know the Cold War comes into play <clears throat> after World War II, and suddenly you have all these movies about Martians and Mars. They're kind of like playing into the Cold War fear is that like okay instead of Russians attacking us it's Martians attacking us and again just point off that fear of invasion you have invaders from Mars and so you have a lot of those films that come out they're kind of like serious sci-fi and they were sort of scary for kids at that time um, and then you get into this whole craze you know starting to get spooked a little bit and that's just sort of like a kind of a natural thing that I think happens and so you get these comedies you know you have uh, uh you have uh, Abbott and Costello, and then you have the Three Stars, the Three Stooges. I was thinking of as well, um, which I have some fun stuff about their movie, The Three Stooges Meet the Martians, which is just crazy, you know. And, and they're such goofy movies, but they're fun. I mean, it's the Three Stooges, so that's what's supposed to be. Um, I talked about one one aspect of it that I loved, which was they had to film a scene. Um, they wanted to film it at uh, Oxnard Air Force Base, and to do that, they had to get permission. To, to shoot, you know, because it's government property. And so they wrote a letter to uh, to the Air Force Base. And the guy there, uh, who's the head of their audiovisual department, he explained um, that they had to review the script and they weren't, they weren't really keen on helping out. And he said the physical cooperation requested falls within the limited cooperation category. But to qualify for this assistance, the policy states that the picture is in the best interest of the Department of Defense and the public good. And then all caps, he said, the three stooges meet the Martians hardly fits this bill. And so, <laughs> and so um, their, uh, their agent wrote back and, and said, like, hey, we really want to do this. He said, uh, I understand that you think that there's a fight scene, which I think was one of the questionable scenes. And in the fight scene, a lot of pies get tossed in the faces of Air Force officials. It's crazy. And it's like, oh, the pie in the face gag. And so their agent argued, he said, this scene is needed since the air police need to be temporarily blinded and because it is extremely funny. <laughs> That's the argument. Listen, it is extremely up, funny. We must do this. <laughs> yeah. It's extremely funny. That's the thing. You, and you might be missing that. <laughs> so there's some kind of fun backstories behind a few of these movies, but yeah, I mean, for the most part there, there were a lot of schlocky films about Mars. And again, it's just capitalizing on, on the excitement and the interest around the idea of Mars and Martians. And then on top of all that, you have the UFO craze. I mean, you kind of touched on that a little bit earlier, but yeah. you've got Cold War fairs, you've got UFO, which is also kind of related. Um, so there's just a lot going on, you know? So pop culture is going to capitalize on it. It just seems like it goes to the absurd, like the extreme levels though. Like everybody is like fixated on Mars and like the Twilight Zone and all these shows, all this stuff like that. I guess it's like you said, because it was our closest neighbor and we had such a fascination with it. So, well, we're coming up on the hour mark now. So is there anything else that you want to cover or go over? Like, what are you, what are you working on now? Or you want to talk about your website tomorrow? Or do you want to talk about anything from any other books or anything like that? Well, right now I'm working on a new book, which will be kind of in a similar structure as the big book of Mars. It'll be on ghosts instead, which is also full of all kinds of amazing, weird history um, and current stuff going on. So that's going to be really fun. I've been really busy working on that. Um, my my last book before Mars was was also about a very weird piece of history called the embalmed head of Oliver Cromwell, a memoir. That's right. We were going to talk about that one. <laughs> well, yeah. 
that was that's a that that story was that was somebody took this guy's head and then it was just out like traveling around for however long. Yeah, so Oliver Cromwell, you know, was Lord Protector of England, Ireland, and Scotland in the mid 1600s. He led the charge to behead Charles I during the the uh, English Civil War. So Charles I was beheaded in 1649, and that ended the monarchy. Um, Cromwell took over, like I said, as Lord Protector. And then when he died um, in 1658, he was embalmed and he was buried in Westminster Abbey. And then a few years later, Charles II restored the monarchy and, you know, he had a king again. And he was pretty pissed off about his dad getting beheaded. So he exhumed Cromwell. As one would be. Yeah, you know, he was a little upset. So he hanged the embalmed body and he beheaded it. And he stuck the the embalmed head atop Westminster Hall on a, a spike. You know, the tip pointing through the head. And it sat there for 25 years. Um, you know, got a little bit ruined from the weather. And then a storm eventually rotted away, I guess, the wood stake that was going through through the head. And it fell to the ground. And it got picked up. Like you mentioned, someone picked it up and took it home. And, and then from there, it just kind of got passed through various hands. I eventually fell into the possession of one family for five generations. And so it traveled for 300 years. It was reburied in 1960 um, at Sydney Sussex College at Cambridge University. And so I wrote the memoirs of the head, basically the head telling it's you know all from the head's point of view, going through history, uh, 300 years worth of history, which was hits on all the real things, all the real places and hands. It, it went from you know, one person to another. And then, of course, I sort of inject a little bit of a, you know, imagined anecdotes along the way to kind of fill some gaps about what was going on, but hitting on real historical events. Man, <laughs> it's a weird, it's a weird story. I mean, it's crazy that this thing happened. So you have anything that you want to go over to with about your strange finds on, on eBay? Sure. <laughs> so my, my <laughs> first looked, every time I have you on, I have to ask you about that because you found the weirdest shit. Yes. From my first book called found on eBay, um, 101 genuinely bizarre items from the world's online yard sale. And yeah, I mean, that was, that was just a lot of fun, just finding these really weird things. And and then I, what I did was I wrote the sellers really weird questions because I thought, well, if you're selling weird stuff, I want to ask you a weird question. And then they, they'd have like a really great response because they were trying to make a sale. You know, uh, one of my favorites was one of the first ones I found that, that I used to pitch the book idea, uh, which was called a deer poop paperweight. And this was a woman in Massachusetts who was going around collecting um, deer droppings and then she decorate them like a, a little crystal paperweight you know, little snowflakes and evergreen leaves and stuff and she'd sell them as pooper weights which I thought was pretty clever so I emailed her and I, I told her that I collected animal droppings from all over the country so I was wondering where she found it to see if it was one of the areas I was targeting for my collection and uh, so she, she let me know she told me where she found the droppings and she also offered me porcupine droppings and I think moose droppings in case I needed that <laughs> which are just great. So the book just reprints all these weird objects, um, you know, and the stats that go with it, the bids and the price that they sold for and, and then descriptions and then our correspondences back and forth, which are pretty funny. You know, I love the fact that they, they liked my ideas. Like I had a, a hornet's nest someone was selling and, uh, and I asked if, if hornets would be attracted to this and seek shelter inside or can it be stuffed with candy and be made into a pinata? I do oh on God. <laughs> I told him I do oddball children's parties. And he, said, <laughs> he assured me. He said, no, 
The hornets would not be attracted to the nest. It would make a great pinata. I never thought of that. It has some beautiful pink and blue colors around it, but it would be, pre- be perfectly safe. So, you know, like anything to make a sale, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> oh, all right. Um, we're going to let you go here in a second. So where can people find you and how can they find your books and all those things? So you can find the big book of Mars. Uh, if you're going out to bookstores again, you'll find it there. Um, but of course you can go online at Amazon or barnesandnoble.com or, uh, bookshop.org. I mean, any place you buy books online, you can find the big book of Mars. It actually comes out on September 15th on audio, on audible and audio CD as well, which is kind of exciting. My first, um, audio book. Uh, but yeah, anywhere you buy books, you should find the big book of Mars and, uh, the Cromwell book we talked about, you can find that on Amazon or Barnes and Noble online. Um, any of my books you can find anywhere online. And, uh, and then there's my website, which you mentioned, weirdhistorian.com. And then what, I'll, I'll plug one other thing. I started another little venture called curiouspublications.com, uh, where I'm taking old public domain books and bringing them back to life, which has been really fun. Weird, cool. really weird, obscure books. What, 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 was, what website is this? What's it called? Curiouspublications.com. And are you, are you putting them up there as PDFs or are you reselling the books? Or I redesign them and I add I add something to each one, whether it's like a review of the book from that time period, like early 1900s or late 1800s, um, a forward or just something to give it a little something extra. But they're all laid out nicely, redone, you know, handcrafted lettering and new covers. Um, I have How to Speak with the Dead, a practical handbook, which is great. Um, Spectropia, which is a beautiful, beautifully illustrated book from 1864 that shows you how you can see ghosts in your home. And you can stare at these images and then see ghosted images of them on your walls and ceilings. So it's a cool interactive book from 1864 with what I think is maybe the coolest cover. Um, one of the coolest covers I've ever seen. It's just beautifully illustrated. Uh, so it, it's been kind of a fun little project. And I you're, you're actually miss... selling these on the site, no? Yeah, well, it'll link over to Amazon. Um, it's, uh, you know, I got to figure out some e-commerce still. I'm new at this, oh, but, but it was, this was a like little... <laughs> oh, they're not. That this was a little, little, a little project I started early in the pandemic when I had, uh, when I was waiting on the ghost book to get an offer, and then uh, was out of work for a while. So I, I did this to keep my sanity. Oh, this is not going to be good for my wallet at all. What was the name of the website again for the book? <laughs> you need to see this. It's curiouspublications.com. You yeah. need to go see this right now, Joe. You need to go to this website. Yeah, this no, is I'm, really I'm cool. going right now. Why do you think I asked? I love it when people do this stuff. Like take these because I'm a big I'm a, I'm a big uh, like book file guy. I'll, I'll go out. I, I've got massive, massive amounts of books on Arcana and Magic and all of these esoteric topics on PDF because I can't find them anymore. So I'm kind of this in this weird little network, but full disclosure, I've never discussed this on here, but people know it. I'm in this weird little network of people that interchange all of these old books that are on PDF about, you know, old practices and magic and old, all of this really old stuff and just esoteric topics, these books that are no longer in print or in the public domain where people have just found them at yard sales and scanned them into a PDF form. So I've got this pdf library i've probably got about 600 books like of course i'm never going to read all of these but it's just the idea that i have this information and when i get bored like when the pandemic hit i started going through and just reading all this stuff off of pdf but i greatly prefer having a physical book in hand especially if somebody's gone out and found this stuff and and re you know re um textualized it and put it into a new cover and updated it and put in notations and stuff and they're like i've got 
a copy of The Long Lost Friend, which is a book on essentially Christian magic. It's been republished a few times, but I try whenever I see a copy of these things laying around, I find them and I buy them. So, like, you you may see me buy all of these. <laughs> that would be awesome. Thank you. I mean, like, I, a, a lot of these books, like you said, people will republish them, but they tend to just not be well, very like, good. You know, the Talking Dead is they fifteen have, bucks. It's four. It's fourteen ninety nine. I mean, that's not a bad price for an old book like this for someone to come back out and do it. And I love all these old weird books like this. So yeah, I try to keep the prices reasonable. You know, it's not. Um, is this print on demand, or do you just have the stuff printed out ahead of time, waiting to go? No, I did. I did print on demand just to, like, I'm saying, I'm, I'm kind of new with this, so I'm testing it out. So this keeps it kind of easy for me. Um, but you know, the production is great. I mean, they do a terrific job. I'm really pleased with the results. I, I did um, Spirit Slate Writing and Kindred Phenomena, which was written by William E. Robinson, who. If, anyone listening is uh, into old magic history was the guy who played Chung Ling Su, best known as Chung Ling Su, who was the guy who was shot on stage doing the bullet, uh, catch the bullet trick. Um, really remarkable story around his whole life, but he wrote a book uh, exposing how spiritualists did all these different slate writing tricks and, and uh, the title says kindred phenomena. So it's, it's got tons of illustrations, which are all, you know, cleaned up and put in the book and um, hardcover, nice soft touch covers. It's really good stuff. I mean, the stuff I see out there, like other people republishing, it's usually kind of a lame cover with just the title and no art at all. They just sort of plop in a PDF and print it out. It's just not really cured for much. So I try to put a lot more craft into it and just give it sort of the, the love and, and reverence that these books, I think, deserve. I have Barnes & Noble gift cards that are uh, burning a hole in my pocket right now. <laughs> like in go. my <laughs> hand. <laughs> Looking, like the spirit state writing is, I, I'm probably going to buy, I'm probably going to buy all of these and I will probably end up getting a divorce. So, yeah. <laughs> I just love having old shit like this that's republished. You I have, have an issue more. with how to speak with the dead. It says, does not guarantee results. This is snake oil. <laughs> Everyone should know. <laughs> That's like the greatest the title. Side of Hell is love, great. Oh my god, the Side of Hell is insane. That is a yeah, that's crazy a good one. Book. Wow, yeah. I love it. It's a children's book. I could give this to people what? for their kids. Like it's a children. It's a children's. It says was written for children and young persons. Damn it! So I'm going to give it as a Christmas gift for children. Have you have you seen? I mean, I have this one on the WeirdHistorian.com. I wrote about it, and then as I started republishing, I thought, oh, I should go back and do that book because that was just a crazy book. But this Reverend in the 1870s wrote that book and it was it was part of his series of books for kids and basically it's scaring the hell out of them by taking them on a tour of hell and it's just i mean the oh, way it's, it's written is so graphic for it's, yeah it's so descriptive i mean oh it's, my god it's look at the crazy. picture i'm sorry hold on this is a great great quote direct from the book little child if you go to hell there will be a devil on your side to strike you he will go on striking you i can't read that part Every minute, forever and ever, without ever stopping. That's awesome. Whoa! The the fire, the something stroke will make your body as bad as the body of Job, covered from head to foot with sores. And I can't read that word. That yeah, and ulcers. Oh, excellent. Yeah, this is definitely a children's book. This is fantastic. Look at the cover <laughs> of it. How could this be? Oh, there's a, a lot. The illustrations book. are fantastic. Well, it's it's made to scare children. That's, is this, this is scary. Is, can, can I mean, wow. Oh, it is available. It's cheap, too. It's not that much. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I looked at it already. I'm like, yeah, okay. I like hardcovers. Why did you <laughs> this create is a hardcover this website? <laughs> that, one's a, that one's a soft cover. It's it's not a long book. You know, it's rather short. Um, but 
it's just jam packed with absolute insanity. I mean, you read some good some good quotes from there. It just goes on and on like that. Oh, what's that sound? Is that water boiling? No, that's the sound of a, a boy's brain boiling forever and ever for millions of years because he went to a dance hall. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's the kind of stuff that's going on in there. It's, it's really phone bizarre. messages. What is psycho phone? I'm, I'm stuck here now, man. You've got I already me. read the descriptions. I can tell you what it is. It's a guy who had a device called a psycho phone and nobody knows what it is. <laughs> See, oh, I yeah, he got a lot, of messages you. From, a lot of messages from dead, you know, dead people. And he recorded them. <laughs> <laughs> also a great cover thank you wow so did I you had some fun all designing. these covers you, you did yeah. all the covers on wow oh how many more of these books do you have planned are you going to be doing more of this <laughs> this is awesome. I'm, I'm planning to yeah when i finish I'll, I'll have to finish my ghost book and once i finish that um i intend to do some more with this as well yeah, I, I may buy fun. some of these and just give them away as giveaways on the show I, I might buy the site of hell and give that away to a listener. <laughs> so I, I might do a giveaway through this. Oh man, that'd be great! Thank you. This is. I'll awesome. probably get Lando that one. Yeah, I was just thinking It'll that that would be a by great that. book for for Lando for your co-host. Yeah, he likes physical books way more than me, so that would be perfect for me to send him a book and say, "Here, my fill up your shelves. I have no room." My only regret is you've only got eight books on here, so you know. <laughs> I was going as fast as I could. That that was all in. A, like I said earlier in the pandemic um, and then I started working on the ghost book and that's, that's eating up all my time now, but that's been a lot of fun. Yeah. This is, there'll, be, there'll be good stuff. We'll talk about that one again when that's ready. Yeah. You, you need to keep doing this. This is badass. This, th- we need more of this kind of stuff out there. Like people to come and rescue these really obscure old books like this and republish them and update the artwork and stuff. I, this is awesome. Thank yeah. You. This is uh this is not going to be good for my wallet because <laughs> I want to buy all of these. What is the antisocial network? What's that one? Oh. It looks like it's oh, a journal. Is it a journal? Yeah, that's what I did yeah. years ago. Actually, that got um, republished in a nicer edition um, by Knock Knock Books, which was really fun. And that was just that was the easiest book I've ever written. It's it's a blank book, um, but I have <laughs> lines. I have lines like at the bottom of, of both pages that kind of have you know, just a little joke kind of poking fun at our addictions to social media. So that one's, that one's sort of like not related to the other books on there. Okay. Uh, I did that a while ago. Uh, Also though, in all seriousness, probably a good book for kids to say, you know what? Not everything has to go online, write something down and then revisit it a day later and decide whether you need to broadcast this to the world. The Mm -hmm. subtitle was, uh, it's a place for all your thoughts, ideas, and plans you don't want to share because you don't have to share everything. Yes. There's a sadly lacking message in today's world. Yes. Well, it looks like I'll be having you back on when your ghost book is done, and I'll definitely be having you on here talk about some of these. <laughs> Terrific. I'm happy to do it whenever. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, Mark, we're going to let you go. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you for you know sending me this really cool book. And uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And your website is its still one of my favorite ones to go to when I've got time to kill. Plus, the stuff that you cover on here isn't the – like every, there's all kinds of weird websites out there that cover a lot of strange things. And you seem to go a little bit deeper and find even more obscure stuff. I'm always fascinated by the amount of obscure, weird shit that people can find out there because just as soon as I think I've seen everything, I go down these rabbit holes. Um, I was just talking on another podcast actually about this, about how I go on these weird rabbit holes late at night and I go out searching for stuff. And then I end up on these strange websites that talk about all these just bizarre, weird things that you cover. 
And you've been doing this for quite some time. This isn't something new for you. You know, um, historian, hist- weirdhistorian.com has got everything. It's got paranormal, human oddities. Um, someday I want to have you on here to talk about circus sideshows because that's a topic that I've never really completely covered on this show because I'm always looking for a different way to do it. But you've got you've got everything on here. You've got stuff on witchcraft, obscure stories from everywhere, and um, you know it's it's a great site to go to. It's a nice it's a nice time sink for strange history. Yeah, no, thank you. I've got a podcast I started also earlier in the year. I was going to so bring that up episodes next. Episodes on there. Yeah, yeah. How how often are you putting that out there now? Are you still doing the podcast or? I want to get back to it again when I when I get freed up. Um, Right now, I'm just focused on the ghosts, so I, I put the podcast to the side. But I did uh, 11 episodes. Um, they're they're short. They're like 10 to 15 minutes, pretty much, uh, just taking through different stories that are on the site. But it was fun. I mean, I, I liked it. I'd like to get back to doing it some more. So hopefully, I can get back into that probably early next year. Well, thank you for being on here, sir. It's been fun to talk to you, and uh, we'll be talking to you again at some point, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was great to be back on. Thank you. No problem. Take care. So that was Mark Hartzman from WeirdHistorian.com, Joe from the Ozone Nightmare Podcast, and a very Sudafed, decongested, um, whatever I could shove up my nose to allow me to breathe Rogen trying to stumble that way through that podcast. Anyways, so uh, yeah, do go check out his blog at WeirdHistorian.com. Also, do go check out his Curious Books site. There's not a lot of books on there. The ones that are on there are very cool. I may or may not have ordered half of the books already. They may or may not already be on their way to me, and my wife may or may not kill me when the books come in because I have what some people refer to as a book buying problem. It's not really a problem. I can stop whenever I want. I just don't want to stop. So yeah, that's how it goes. I'm also in the process of putting together another podcast with a buddy of mine called Old Nerds Drinking, which is going to be the geek equivalent to what Project Archivist is. It's not my show. It's his show, but I'm helping him out. I don't know when a launch date's going to be ready for that yet. We're still securing a lot of the stuff. We're in the process of building the studio in his basement right now. Um, that's going to be an interesting show. I don't know how often I'm going to do it. And we're just like, he says, I'm going to record a podcast and you're going to help me do it. And I'm like, oh God, okay, let's do it. Which is weird because I haven't really felt like podcasting lately. But for whatever reason, when that starts, all these people come out of the world. Like, hey, will you come on my show? Will you do this? Will you do that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. I'll do it. Okay, yeah, I'll do it. And that's what happens. So anyways, there are shows coming down the pipe. I'm putting together one with a gentleman over in New Zealand and Joe from over at Ozone again, which is kind of crazy because I'm dealing with a time zone that's 19 hours different than mine. And then you've got California in the mix, which is like three hours different than my my, my time zone. And uh, yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I don't know why the hell I do this stuff to myself. But anyways, yeah, stuff's coming down the pipe. Um, there might not be a show next week, but everything's falling back into place and things are moving and gears are turning again. And I'm beginning to babble. So I'm going to close the show up because, again, I am whacked out on Suda. Fed. The show that I'm the song that I'm closing the show up with is from this band that I discovered out of Greece called Tuber. Yes, I know they're named after a vegetable, but they do this really cool, like trippy, psychedelic guitar music that I, it's it's all instrumental, and I love the stuff.
stuff that they do. And this is a song called Attack from Mars. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. Be cool. Be cool to one another. Wear your masks. Don't catch the COVID, you know, and, uh, you know, just just take it easy. You know, don't don't do stupid stuff right now. Let's just try to make it through 2020 and into 2021. This is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. <laughs>